And we've concluded our study of chapter one, and we will begin studying chapter two of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, chapter two is broken into two large chunks structurally. It can be helpful to think of as our past and present condition individually, and then, starting in 11 to the end of the chapter, our past and present condition corporately. Our past and present condition individually and our past and present condition corporately. Assuming you as, as I, I'm a Gentile. Um, and so Paul wants the Ephesians to understand the riches, we saw this in the last few weeks, of what God has done for them. And now in chapter two, he's gonna do that both positively and negatively. Here's where you formerly were, and here is the grace in which you now stand. And here is you Gentiles where you were formerly. And here is the grace where you now stand. And so verses one through 10 are that first contrast. And we're gonna look at that over two or three weeks, but I'd like to read all of verses one through 10 as we look at our past and present individual Condition. So I'm going to read now. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace, of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. O oh Lord God as we look at the plan that you enacted in eternity past as it unfolds in our lives. Give us eyes that we might see and know the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, and your immeasurable power directed towards us. Let us see and understand what it was you have saved us from. And Lord, if there are any here who do not know you, who are not joined by faith to Christ, make them aware of the terrible situation they are in. We thank you for this, and we trust that you will give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. So at the end of chapter 1, Paul closed with a prayer, first of thanksgiving, and then he lists his ongoing, repeated, daily prayer for the Ephesian church. And it came down to this. He wanted them to know more fully what he'd already declared to them. He wanted them to know more fully who this God was who had saved them, and what he had done on their behalf. And so we saw that in those three clauses at the end of chapter 1. That you might know what is, in verse um, 19, no, verse 18, what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints? 
Well, even back, sorry, no, 18, even further. That you might know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And I think in many respects, that's further what he's developing and unfolding. He wants us to understand, he wants the Ephesians to understand what God has done on our behalf. The assumption being we think the salvation he has given for us is too small. We don't view it rightly enough. And so he's going to try to deepen it, both in our understanding of our peril that we were in and the greatness of what we've been saved to. The contrast, of course, being if you don't think you were in much trouble, then whatever has saved you out of that can't be that great. So he's going to show us our dead condition. In fact, all of verses 1 to 3 are one big clause that set up the main subject and verb that don't show up until verses 4 and 5. It's one big concessive clause. If you look through it, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, now there's the subject of your sentence. I know, I know in English, your English translations have divided this up into sentences, but in the Greek, there's the subject. This is a sentence about God doing something. And so all of verses 1 to 3 are setting up a contrast, trying to highlight something. In fact, we're going to look at the, the three things God does for us. We're going to look at that next week. You see them in, in verse 5. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. For by grace you've been saved. Verse 6. And raised us with him and seated us with him. Those are the three things, three main verbs in this one long sentence in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And then what follows after that is purpose and, and, and consequence. So we'll be looking at the heart of this next week. God raised us. He made us alive. He seated us with Christ. In parallel to what he ended chapter 1 saying God did in Christ. So just as Christ was raised from the dead, God has raised us from the dead. Just as Christ has been exalted, we are raised in him. That's the logic we'll see next week. This week, our focus will be on our prior condition. We, we will bridge the gap somewhat because the emphasis on deadness is to set up and highlight the greatness of being made alive in Christ. Um, it's maybe a way of illustrating it is this. The purpose of verses 1 to 3, the primary focus of our study this morning, is to make our jaws drop even further and to highlight God's grace in making us alive. I can illustrate it this way. If I say, Serena agreed to marry me, you may have all sorts of thoughts about what I might be emphasizing. But if I say, though I was undeserving, though I was a sinner, though I had been saved but recently, though her brother had seen me at prior states of sanctification when I was at Word of Life, Though she had even seen some of that when I was at school. Though I'd given her ample cause to be concerned, Serena yet married me. What am I emphasizing now? My wife's folly, I understand. But, <laughs> but, but that long clause sets up the contrast, right? That's what Paul is doing here. He wants us to get the incongruity. I've said this before, but he wants to set up our undeservedness, which is, again, why any sort of gospel presentation that talks about us having great worth and value outside of Christ is nonsense. The whole point of this is in absolute contrast to what we deserve 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It's meant to set up something that's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be surprising. It's supposed to be amazing. The but God that shows up in verse 4. So, what is the purpose then of this study? Well, I think there's some use in looking at our former states. Do we agree this is the assessment of our former state before we came to faith? Is this the way we view ourselves? Do we understand ourselves as coming from this type of peril? Or was Jesus sort of like an app that we added to our life and it's improved our life? But I had a decent life before Jesus. I have a better life now. That's not what Paul lays out here. What is our state? Also, as we witness and as we pray for the lost, what is their state? And if you're here today, not in Christ by faith, what is your state? We're going to see that in these verses. And Paul uses some very striking terms. We are the walking dead. And I don't mean in a TV show. We are dead in verse 1, but we're walking and we're living. And that's all to set up the contrast of the grace of God. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, there's three ways that this relationship could be taken um, of the in. Three ways. Now, your English translations, unless you have the NLT, all agree with the in. But in, in Greek, there's three possible ways this could be, be understood. Um, is Paul saying we are dead because, causal, because of our trespasses and sins? Is Paul saying agency, we are dead through the means of our trespasses and sins? Or, as I think he's saying, and as all of your English translations evidence, are we dead as evidenced by, in the sphere of, location or sphere, our trespasses and sins? What, what I mean by that is this. Let me take the analogy of death a different way. We could say that if someone broke into your house and murdered you, you are dead because of the intruder. You're dead because of the burglar. He is the cause The burglar may have used a gun, the instrument. You're dead because of a gun. But we could also say you were dead in a pool of blood. You were found, this person was found dead in a pool of blood. And the indication there is the evidence. How do we know they were dead? In what circumstance is their death manifest, made evident? Well, it's the growing pool of blood. That is what Paul is saying here. This is important. He's not saying we are dead because we sin. We are dead because we commit trespasses. Rather, what he is saying, and I think you'll see by the end of these three verses, you want proof that we are dead? Do you question the diagnosis? I'm not sick. I'm just, I'm not dead. I'm just sick. This is the evidence. This is the growing pool of blood that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt our death. It also helps us understand in what way are we dead? Clearly not physically dead. He's even going to go on to say we're living In verse 3, among whom we all once lived. So we're dead, yet we're capable of walking and living. Well, I think you'll see also this is a spiritual or ethical deadness. This is the type of death Jesus spoke of in Luke 9.60. Jesus, to the man who said, let me go first bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. Let those who are spiritually dead bury their own physical dead. So we're going to be looking at this. What does it mean to be dead? Because I think many of us, if we're honest, don't think of ourselves formally as dead, but rather sick, dying. As we picture people we interact with in the world, they're not dead in their trespasses and sins. They are dying 
because of their trespasses and sins. That is not the picture Paul states. It's far, far darker, and our condition is more desperate. Sometimes we think of the gospel offer as, as a hand reaching out to a drowning person. And if they'll just take hold of that hand, Christ will save them. I think Paul depicts us rather as five fathoms down at the bottom of the ocean, dead. What we need is to be resurrected. And again, I want to emphasize that because the nature of our sickness will determine the nature of the cure. And Paul insists that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Then he goes on to tell us what that looks like and how that can be known, okay? That's, that's what I believe the flow of this is. In fact, if you have the, the King James or the New King James here, um, the tension that Paul sets up with this long clause in the first three verses, they, they release by adding in the verb from verse 5, they put it in there and say, you were dead, he made alive, to go on. But Paul is, is front-loading this to stack up all of the reasons why what God is about to do is amazing, why what God is about to be said to do in verse 5 is unexpected. So hopefully we too will be amazed. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul gives us two examples, two ways to see that deadness. First, in verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. So your first blank, in which you formerly walked. In which you formerly walked. Now the Greek the notion behind this verb walk is conduct yourself, your daily life. Before the automobile, the vast majority of humans on the planet walked about. And that's even an expression in Australia, heaven will walk about. And so the idea of your walk is the way you conduct yourself throughout the day. And it's a metaphor that Paul will return to um, extensively in chapter 4 and 5 of Ephesians. But even at the end of this section, look at verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should live out our daily life in them. Turn over to chapter 4. Paul is going to use this metaphor of walk walking around, walking about, as the primary way to divide his ethical instruction, his commands, his, his exhortations to us, starting in chapter 4. So in four one, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. 4.17, next section. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. And then the final, the fifth walk. 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So all of Paul's ethical instruction, his so what, the imperatives of Ephesians are couched in and framed in this notion of daily conduct and walk in life. And so he's setting up that contrast. He's going to tell us how we ought to walk. Now we're looking at how we used to walk. You see? And so one of the ways our deadness is evidenced, is seen, is in our day-to-day conduct. That's how you can tell someone is spiritually dead. In which you once walked. Notice again the once. This also assumes that with salvation and with regeneration, there comes a change that evidences itself out in the dead person in which you formerly walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. So we were walking in trespasses and sins, and yet our walking was of a particular type. You can walk in a bunch of directions, but he makes it clear we're following a course. Now in your outline, I put according to, because the the Greek preposition kata, my Greek class students are attracting me here, um, means according to. And, and I want you to get the idea. It's not that we were following as if we had a choice. We could follow this or we could follow that, but we happen to be following this. It's more, it's in step with. It's in accordance with. Or the illustration that I'll use is this. If, if you are in a small little inner tube in a large river that is deep and yet moving with some speed, you may have the illusion of freedom. You can swim this way and you can swim that way. But the river is moving you along its course. And that's the picture I think Paul is giving here. Many, many people give that the reason they don't want to become Christians. They want to keep their freedom. And yet the biblical insistence is you are not free. You became free in Christ. You were formerly a slave. That's what Paul's going to emphasize here. We're walking about, but we're walking about a certain course. According to the course of this evil World, according to the course of this evil world. And the world here, that's the notion, the world system, the world sphere. The Germans have a term for this, this course of the world, zeitgeist. The spirit of the age, and it's, it's not accidental that, that the culture moves in a unit. It's not accidental that our culture now is obsessed with notions of, of uh, fairness. Fairness is the wrong word. Of, of tolerance. Our culture is obsessed with a new definition of tolerance. Our culture is obsessed with a new understanding of sexual morality, of gender. And, and it's not accidental that the culture as a whole moves monolithically. There is a course to this world. If you study world history, you can see the change of thought as it moves throughout history. And in general, there is a course. There's a riverbed, and the river flows. And we were all being swept along by that. Maybe unaware that our course is being directed, but being directed nonetheless. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul writes this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so even though we may feel free, and within that river that's moving, we may be able to go down the river over here, we're able to go down the river over here. We're still going down the river. We're going where the river is taking us. We're being carried along according to we're following the course of this evil world. That, that is our state. The world is, is shaping us. The world was putting us into its mold, leaving its stamp and imprint upon us. That is how we can see our former deadness. And as you witness to your neighbors, co-workers, there's a reason why they're going along with the current cultural trends and shifts. It's not accidental. There's a current that they're caught up in. And they're dead and powerless to fight against it. According to the course of this evil world. Second, according to the prince of the power the air, according to the prince, the power of the air. Two things here. According to the devil who is now working. 
Who is the prince of the power of the air? Paul makes that much more clear a little later. The, the Jewish thought and the thought in that time is that spirits move about in the air. Even the word for spirit can mean breath or wind. And so the prince of the power of the air would be a spiritual prince, a spiritual power. Turn over to chapter 4. Verse 27. I'll go 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Chapter 6. Pick it up in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who Paul has in mind when he talks about the prince of the power of the air. According to the prince of the power of the air. So what you learn now is if, if unbelievers, if you and I were formerly in this river, this moving somewhere, we now learn that this river is, is actually a canal. It's been dug. It's, its path has been determined. There is a mind behind where this river goes. That yes, the, the spirit of the age... The wisdom of the world is moving somewhere, but it's also moving in accordance with the devil and his desires. It's not accidental, the cultural mores that are popular now. It, 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 there's an there's a intentionality, schemes, and plans, and we all walked according to them. Unbelievers walk according to them. Sometimes you may get frustrated with unbelievers and some of the... the, the Things that to us seem stupid and nonsensical that they believe that the culture embraces. And yes, I think many of those things are stupid and nonsensical, but there's a good reason why. They're dead. And, and they're caught up in a current. And that current is being directed by a mind. Following the prince of the power of the air. The devil who is now working. And by the way, this is in contrast to God, right? We saw back in um, chapter 1, verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to counsel of his will. Here the devil is working. He's not working all things. His influence is limited to a subset of all things. God works in and through all things. Uh, the prince of the power of the air is at work in the sons of, and here's your blank, faithlessness. The sons of faithlessness. His influence is over, you call them worldlings, faithlessness. The reason I put faithlessness there is that the word used here, apathia, is, is an interesting word. It, it, its root is the notion of being convinced or persuaded, and frequently it's used that way without the alpha privative at the front, to mean exactly that. So Paul can speak of persuading people. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But used negatively, it, 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 it follows the track of belief to action. It does mean disobey. It absolutely means disobey. But it is assuming the cause of disobedience is a lack of faithfulness, a lack of being convinced. Think, think of it this way. If, if somebody has a disease and they need to take a treatment or medicine 
and you say, I finally persuaded them to take the medicine, is not within that statement an assumption they've then taken the medicine? Well, technically, you didn't say they took anything. You just said you persuaded them. But at least in that instance, I, I persuaded them to take their medicine. You assume the action that follows. Well, that's the assumed action that follows eventually overtook the meaning of this word. So it means disobedience, but it's a disobedience from a lack of being persuaded, a lack of faithfulness to God. It's, it's the same word used in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, whoever is not convinced by and therefore obeys the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So let's just stop and, and summarize this first point. We were walking about in our daily life, but even though we're walking about in our daily life as unbelievers, that walk is going one place. It's being swept along by this current age, swept along by the course of this world. And that course also just so happens to be directed by, chosen, influenced by the prince of the power of the air. See, we have this illusion of freedom, this illusion of, of agency and power, but the reality is we're being swept along, directed by, and the devil is at work within these sons of faithlessness. By the way, that expression, sons of disobedience, is a Hebrewism. Um, we tenderly think of when you say son of as genetic descent, but Jesus will use that phrase. You see in the gospel, sons of Belial, sons of worthlessness. The Jewish notion is far more like father, like son. So the, the expression, a son of worthlessness, is saying something like, you're so ridiculously and disgustingly worthless, the only possible way to explain that is to explain that you are part of the worthless family. That's, that's the notion. He describes us and all of mankind then as sons of disobedience and the disobedience that comes from faithlessness. It, it characterizes us. The only way to possibly explain how faithless and disobedient we are and were is we're part of the faithless family. That's how we see that we were dead. That's how our deadness is seen. Spiritual death it's about not believing what God has said, not obeying what God has laid out, being swept along by this world and its wisdom, being acted upon by the evil one, by the devil. Now, in fact, turn over to John 8. Jesus gives an extended treatment on this um, to the shocked audience of Jews. In John 8. Pick it up in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, you're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone except the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Syrians, and the Babylonians, and the Medo-Persians, and the Romans, but apart from them, nobody. Well, Jesus is talking about spiritual slavery. And they're either being obtuse or intentionally misunderstanding the point. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Or they're getting it and they're insisting on their spiritual freedom. 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. It's the same logic Paul's making. I can see your deadness. I can see in this instance the metaphor is slavery. I can see your slavery because you, you hate my word and you want to kill me because of it. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. You see the like father, like son metaphor here? Jesus is not insinuating any ill conduct on their mother's part. He's, he's not talking about being sons of Abraham genetically. Sons of Abraham like chips off the old block. You're, you're acting like your family that you're part of. That's the logic. If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing Abraham's works. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Jesus, I've been a little too subtle up to this point. Let me be clear. It is because my, you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Now, there's not a single Jew in Jesus' audience who would own up to that. I mean, understand, th this is true despite their ignorance of it. Jesus is not saying that they are self-consciously Satan worshipers. Rather, even as they think they are free, even as they think they are offspring of Abraham, even as they think they are spiritual and religious and right with God because they are dead, or in Jesus' metaphor, slaves, they are bound to do nothing but the will of their father. And how does he tell? Verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning, and you're acting like murderers because you want to kill me. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. I'll show you how if your father the devil, he's a murderer and he hates the truth. You hate my truth and want to kill me. Whose family do you look like? That's what Jesus is saying. That's back in Ephesians, Paul's argument. You're dead. No, I'm not. I'm cultured. I'm educated. No, you're not. You're just following the course of this world. You're just walking around in your trespasses and sins being carried along by the course of this evil world, believing what everyone else believes, following the zeitgeist, the trends of the age, being acted upon by the devil, and being sons of faithlessness, being sons of disobedience. By the way, that's another contrast back to our new condition. He's already told us, what, what did he predestine us for in verse 5 of chapter 1? Adoption. So what was the old family we belonged to? The disobedience family, the faithlessness family. We've been adopted into his family, but here's the family and the children we were formerly of. According to the prince of the power of the air, the devil who is now working in the sons of faithlessness. Then um, he gives a second illustration in which you formerly walked, in which we all formerly lived. Now I put in which here to highlight the parallelism, but it's literally among whom, as the ESV has and as other translations have, referring to among whom we formerly lived, these sons of disobedience. We all lived this way. Paul now makes a shocking statement. You might think up to this point by saying you to the Ephesians, he's speaking of and to Gentiles. But now, 
He's including everyone, Jew and Gentile, religious and pagan, among whom we all once lived. This is the state of everyone, high-born, low-born, religious, non-religious, pagan, atheist, agnostic, makes no difference. And here's the second thing. We walked in this and we lived in this. Walked in this and we lived this. We were the walking dead, we were the living dead, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, in which we formerly lived. Notice, by the way, the in, in the cravings of our flesh. Now the emphasis is, is in what sphere? We're dead to God, we're dead to faithfulness, we're dead to to resisting this world and its culture. What are we alive to? What are we living in? Lusts and desires of our flesh. That's what we're alive to. In the cravings of our flesh. Well, that's the other thing for people that want to insist they're free. You have no power. To resist your own desires. You're not free from your own passions. You're not free from your own cravings. In fact, I turn over to Ephesians 4.22. This is part of what the gospel answers. Paul, in setting this up and laying this out, is setting up some of the, um, the exhortations he'll give a little later. So actually, start in verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So they're alive, all right. They're alive in the cravings of the flesh. And next, working the will of the body and mind. They're at work. They're craftsmen. They're, they have a full-time occupation. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. They're alive to their passions. And they have an occupation. They're working. It's the idea behind that word. The will of the body and the mind. Which is interesting to, to note. Unbelievers, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, it, it's hard work to be an unbeliever. Jesus said, whoever you serve as your master, you're going to be a slave of someone. You're going to be a servant of something. And make no mistake, serving your own desires is hard work and pays small dividends. And here we were all working, carrying out, crafting the will of the body and the mind. And notice again that sin and these sinful desires can at least exist in two spheres. I think we get the notions of the desires of the body Desires for sex or drugs or pleasure or alcohol or food or whatever. But there's also a whole other subset of, of evil things, and that's thoughts. Your mind has sinful desires. There are sinful ways of thinking that, you, that we are tempted to embrace. And, and Paul makes it clear, you are carrying out, you are hard at work gratifying the desires of your flesh and your mind. Whether it's thinking better of yourself than you ought, whether it's thinking down on your neighbor, whether it's thinking wrong thoughts about God, there are many different ways, but the, the, second, the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. There's a right way to think that is righteous. And we all, as um, 
children or sons of faithlessness were hard at work carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Make no mistake, how you think is important. I had a professor once say, you're not what you think you are, but what you think that you are. And your thoughts and your internal life are a very, very vivid reality of who and what you are. And so Paul is is summing up from the inside, the outside. We walk about being swept along in this current, directed by the devil. Day in and day out, we're living in the desires of our body, satiating them. Hard at work to fulfill the desires of the mind and the body. And then being, by nature, children of wrath. Being, by nature, children of wrath. That's the verbal force, that being, existing. Um, In fact, it's one of two things Paul says with that verb behind it. You existed, you were being dead, and you were being children of wrath by nature. Being by nature children of wrath. And here's why I insist that Paul is not telling us how we died, but the evidence that we're dead. Because what Paul brings to a crescendo here is that our very nature, your nature, who and what you are, is a child of wrath. You you don't change your nature by changing your deeds. You You didn't become a child of wrath by doing these things. Rather, children of wrath do these things. That word by nature is a word that Paul uses in Galatians 2, 5 to simply mean born. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. This is your and my nature. We're not good people who happen to do bad things. We're not even neutral people with a little good and a little bad in us who do bad things. We are by nature, from the inside out, from the very core of our being, children of wrath. Children who deserve, it is fitting for wrath to fall upon. And then Paul has shown us the evidences that that is our nature in the preceding verses. That, that's the flow of the argument. Understand this. This is, this is critical. You will not rightly appreciate your salvation if you don't understand that from the very innermost part of your being, you deserved God's wrath. You are inviting God's wrath. And that day in and day out, you conducted yourself being swept along by this world, being swept along in the course of the devil, hard at work carrying out the desires of your body and your mind, all that being the big, ever-growing pool of blood that evidences this is a dead man in front of us. That's Paul's argument. And so you're caught up in this river. And then we learn the river is actually a canal. And now finally you see this canal is headed towards a waterfall. Even as we're dead, wrath awaits. It is a dreadful situation that we were in. This is the dreadful situation of your unbelieving neighbors, coworkers, children, family members. This, this is what we deserve. And, and the notion of being by nature is to get any possible excuse off through and through. Apart from Christ, I deserve God's wrath. Through and through, apart from Christ, you deserve God's wrath. You were born into this world deserving God's wrath. Not because of a, an accumulation of things you did, but because that was your nature. And then you acted out your nature every day of your life. That is who we formerly were. That is the problem we have. That God will then amazingly remedy. This is similar to Paul's summary statement in Romans 3. 
You remember Romans 3? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That, that's our condition. I just want to challenge you before we look at God's amazing remedy. Is that how you think of yourself formally? Or if you're not a Christian, you're here today. Do you understand that? That is where you are standing. You are being swept along this river that is really a pre-dug canal that is headed towards a precipice and waterfall. Your very nature, nothing you can change. And the notion of being a by nature children of wrath is that's your nature. No amount of, of external change, no amount of external reform changes your nature. There's nothing you can do to change your nature. You might as well make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. As Ezekiel demands. But now we get one of these amazing statements. But we should get that we are utterly helpless here. We are dead in the river, headed towards the waterfall, but God. And all of that was to set up this contrast, but God. So I ended by saying, we were being, by nature, children of wrath. And the reason I brought that out is he begins by saying what God is being. This is what we were being. We were being children of wrath, children deserving God's anger. What's God being? Rich in mercy. See, the remedy is not found in us. The remedy is found in him. And we are supposed to have our jaws drop and be marveled by the grace that he extends towards us. We deserve his wrath. We live out our days carrying out the desires of the flesh. But God, because he was rich in mercy... First, we have a contrast. We were being children of wrath. God was being, is being rich in mercy. Why was he rich in mercy? He goes on to say, well, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's why God was rich in mercy. How did God get to become rich in mercy? That richness of mercy is there because of the great love with which he loved us. He loved us as children of wrath, he set his love upon us. That, that is the marvel of God's grace. This is part of how Paul is answering his own prayer, that we might know the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance. How can we doubt that God is for us when we were in this situation, and yet he loved us with a great love? God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, we're going we're to pick up in verse 4 next week, but I've got to briefly highlight just, just five things. We've already seen the contrast. Then the cause is the second. The contrast, in contrast to us being children of wrath, we have God being rich in mercy. The cause of that richness of mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Then we get the concession, the repeated concession. All of verses 1 to 3 summarized again. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, which is the very thing Paul has just outlined. And again, this gets back to my illustration of Serena married me. It doesn't highlight what I'm trying to get at. Even though, and I give all these reasons why my wife would have been wise to run the other way. 
She married me. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, being worked upon by the devil himself, we're sons of disobedience. Even though we lived in the passions of our flesh, worked day to night, nine to five, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, even though we were by nature children of wrath like all the rest of mankind, God did something unexpected. Concession, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So we got contrast, cause, concession, point D, cure. He made us alive together with Christ. This is the first of those three verbs. I'll just focus on this one right now. What you and I need is not medicine to cure a sickness. We need resurrection. This again gets back to why emphasize this reality. Because if we're just sick, then we just need a little help. Jesus can give us that little nudge and that push that we need. We're dead and we need to be raised from the dead. We are blind and we need to see. Our hearts are stone and we need hearts of flesh. Our ears are deaf and we need new ears. We are dead. We're in this river that is a canal headed towards a waterfall, and God makes us alive. That's the amazing reality. And it's connected to Christ's resurrection, made us alive together with him. Well, we'll look at that next week, but that is the remedy. What, what has God supplied? What salvation has God wrought for people who are dead? Resurrection. That's what he has wrought. He has given us new life. And that's just the beginning. There's, there's three with verbs that show up here. He's made us alive together with. He has raised us together with. And he has seated us together with. <laughs> this is Paul showing us the riches of our inheritance. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us and the hope of our calling. The cure made us alive together with Christ. Which leads to the conclusion he was setting up. He interjects it here, I think, as an overflow. He's so, he's, he is so, even writing this, authoring this, he is so caught up in, in joy and wonder at what God has done that even as he's trying to cause us to do it, he can't help but interject, by grace you've been saved. He'll return to that in verse 8. More, more extensively. But he has to throw that in right now. Because even as he's writing it, as he looks at our former deadness, and as he looks at the cure that God has brought, and he looks at our undeservedness and the way we're provoking God and inviting his wrath, he has to cry out, it's grace that saved us, not desert. Not merit on our behalf. Not worth. Grace that's, that's the point. We are saved by grace. This grace completely undeserving. And so the challenge is, do we think of ourselves, do we think of others that way, or do we tend to think, well, you know, God can kind of be a stickler. Be a, you know, he can be kind of demanding. No. You've got to flip the script and understand just how deserving of his wrath we are, were. To be marvel at the grace that he made us alive. And all this is of grace. Let's just read verses 8 and through 10, where in a week or two we'll look at this extensively. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You were busy being dead. 
busy being a child of wrath, busy at work carrying out the desires of the body and mind. This is not your work. It's nothing you produced. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the only conclusion is God's amazing grace has been shed upon us. This is our state apart from Christ. This is the state of everyone you know apart from Christ. This is what we've been saved from. Now we're going to transition now to a time of communion. We're going to look at the very means of that salvation and celebrate the death of the Son of God. As we do, I'd like to have a word of prayer and I'll call the men up afterwards. Lord God, Help us to marvel continually at your grace. Let us never become bored with your salvation. Let us never feel entitled to your mercy. Help us to own and see the former depths of our depravity. Help us to own and see your righteous judgment that hung upon us and over all of mankind. We praise you that even though we were by nature children of wrath, you have changed our nature. You have given us new hearts. You have given us new eyes. You have given us new spirits. You have made us your sons and daughters, heirs of grace, heirs of your kingdom, co-heirs with Christ. And let our tongues confess that amazing grace. Lord, now as we celebrate how you accomplished that, let us do it in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name, amen.